0: by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of this power although i am less than the least of the lord's people this grace was given me to preach to the gentiles the boundless riches of christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in god who created all things his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of god should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name— that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we, all, than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is the work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God.
1: On Christmas Day in 1999, a clever spoof of tra- Star Trek hit the big screen. It was called Galaxy Quest. Any of you remember the movie Galaxy Quest? Not very many, I don't think. Well, in any case, it was was a spoof of Star Trek, and it featured Tim Allen and Sigourney Weaver as has-been actors sick and tired of playing roles that made them famous 18 years before. So if you can imagine, it's a Star Trek spoof. And these are people who are going to all these science fiction gatherings, pretending to be James Kirk or pretending who they were, and they're just sick and tired of it. They're going through the motions. They've been traveling the Trekkie circuit, feeling more and more frustrated with their careers, with their whole scene, and with one another. Well, one day, while attending a major convention in this movie, Tim Allen, who plays a Captain Kirk-type character, stumbled into an adventure much more realistic than he had expected— You see, much to his surprise and to ours as we watched the movie, he discovered that a literal alien culture from outer space had seen the television show in its broadcast and thought it was real, thought there really was a Captain Kirk, thought there really was a Starship Enterprise, and began, they were brilliant, though admittedly rather dense, um, began to refashion this Starship Enterprise and begin to uh uh come and they came to this convention thinking it was a real convention thinking that Captain uh, Tim Allen was a real I'll call him Captain Kirk how him so and they and they, they they wanted to have him help them well he of course had no idea that this was the you other know, just another set of crazy you know trekkies you know but before long he realizes that this is a real story these people had patterned their whole culture after the galaxy quest story they were in grave danger and they had built an actual starship enterprise they had seen the television shows which they called historical documents and they had and they weren't humanoids at all but they made themselves look like humans and so tim tim allen recruits his crew to sort of play one great big you know, last scene, thinking again, this is a fake scene, but it not, it's not fake, it's real. These are real aliens on a real spaceship facing real so-called Klingons. It's pretty fascinating, I thought, as I watched that because I had no idea this was going was to be happening. So what follows is a funny and surprisingly thought-provoking adventure story telling how these people were now put into a true story which required the very best efforts that they could muster. All their lives they had been playing pretend only to find much of the surprise that there was a much deeper truth to be lived than the one they had imagined, the one that they had played at. You can imagine how this story evolves, and in the final scene, in what is truly a climactic event, they come crashing into the Trekkie Convention, and the Klingon had gotten on the thing, Tim Allen uh, does his little fancy move and shoots him, and everybody claps. They think it's fake, but we know it's real. It really happened. It's pretty fascinating. And these people were ultimately changed. When they discovered that there was not simply a play acting role for them to fulfill, but a real life story for them to live. It's fascinating. Well, I couldn't help but think of the American church culture when I saw Galaxy Quest the first time the petty adventures and squabbles of those main characters in the film felt all too familiar to me in churches I'd seen and been a part of sometimes. All too often it seemed to me like Christians were a bit like those those actors, uh, uh, sometimes guilty of playing church like these guys were playing it being space adventures, sort of going through the motions, assuming it's not altogether that real. And all the while for them, like for us, a real and true adventure lied deeper beneath the surface of their lives. And it's in part to address this issue. What is the church all about? Are we playing a TV show called Galaxy Quest on the landscape of the real world, like Trekkies going to conventions? Or is there something real and true that God is doing? Is there a real enemy who really desires to harm people? Because, in fact, in this story... These people were going to be decimated. The only surviving members of their race were on that starship. If Captain Kirk, so-called, and his crew didn't save them, not only would Captain Kirk and his crew die, but that whole civilization would be demolished. Is there a living, true story as powerful as that? Are the consequences and the realities of what we're doing really that important? Well, my conviction is, yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's too late for us to play at this thing called church. So that's one of the reasons we wanted to get this new church going, this fellowship we call Ecclesia, the church at the chip. In my opinion, far too much of what we do in American church culture seems to me like little more than what the characters did in that movie. We play out our roles, little realizing that the gospel is the most powerful message in the history of the world. Christians need to be taught that. We need to know that. We need to live that. I'm convinced that most of the problems we Christians have in our lives, we Christians have in our lives, is because we have failed to understand the implications of the gospel in our lives. We're so convinced that we need to get the gospel out there to everyone else. We don't see that we need the gospel too. We need to find our identity, our purpose, our fulfillment, our faith, our love, our hope in the midst of that story of a God who reached out to us, loved us, brought him to himself, made us partners in this great adventure so that we can go about and accomplish his work, his way in his world until he comes again. That's what we're doing. It's, it's the real stuff it didn't seem like it in the culture of Rome in the first century. It didn't seem like that little group of people meeting in house churches and perhaps in the buffalo chip saloons of their day, wherever they could find a tree to get under. It didn't seem like that was the big story. The big stories were things like the emperor and Pilate and, you know, Rome and Caligula and all these things. This was the real news of the day. But while Rome is in rubble, The Christian church has survived because God is doing something, and we get to be a part of that. I'm convinced that the stakes are much too high for us to simply go through the motions of giving mere lip service to the gospel. Like the silly movie I just mentioned, the enemy before us is real, not imaginary, and the consequences to our fellow travelers in this ship called Earth are truly matters of life and death. So what is this thing, church, all about? What is the gospel, and why does it matter? What is our unique church thumbprint within the wider scope of what God is doing in the world? Who are we? Why are we here? What do we think God is calling us to do? Well, we're beginning a short series about four weeks today, just called What's in a Name? What's in a Name? We're called Ecclesia, the Church of the Chip. What's in our name? What are we about? What are we, what are we trying to accomplish here in this little corner of the world called Cave well, what I want to do, have you do with me today is to consider, very simply, by way of introduction, three basic approaches to ministry. Three different ideas about what the church is all about. You can go on, Brian, to the next one. Three different things that the church is all about. Number one approach number one a lot of people see church as a place I attend. Church as a place I attend. This is probably the most common way we think about church today. It's revealed in the questions we ask Where is your church? What time is church? When is church? Where do you go to church? What church do you attend? Ever thought about that? Yeah, I go to Ecclesia. I go to the Church of the Chip, you see? As if church is a thing that happens in a place at a certain time, on a certain, in, on a certain time, at a certain place. Both of these assume that church is something that happens in a particular place, at a particular time. Did you go to church last week? See? Well, yes or no. The question reveals the idea that church is a place to which I go, or to which I belong. We assume that it's a church that meets at a particular place at a particular time, say at 9 o'clock, or in this case, 9.10, <laughs> on Sunday mornings at 6811 East Cave Creek Road, otherwise known as Buffalo Chip, all right? Um, in addition to that fact, there. Uh, uh, in, in addition to the fact that there is no scriptural basis for this kind of thinking, there's nothing to, Paul didn't say when you go to church or when you show up at church or this is where the church. He didn't say that at all. It's not even. It's it, it's foreign to the biblical thinking. It leads to a very small impression of what the church is all about. You know, like uh, Tim Allen and them having these little fake. Communicators, when in fact the people who they showed up had real communities that actually did what they were faking it to do, uh, we, we, we see something simple, we're not seeing the real thing. It is this way of thinking about the church that leads us to think of the church as an institution. The church as an institution is kind of a, a place, a thing that we join or don't join, or are part of or not a part of, promote or don't promote. You see, it's an institution to which we belong. And so, consequently, much of what we do is designed to develop, promote, and to, and to protect the institution of the church. Our goal is to protect this thing, to make it. So, we've got to build a church, and a lot of denominations that we have, we have to have a church of our style in that city, right? We don't have a holiness church or a reformed church or a, you know, or a Baptist church in that town. We've got to get our, you see, we, we, we think in terms of protecting, promoting our institution, that's why in so many churches and in our culture there is so much emphasis on the great Bs of the church. You know what the 3 Bs that define successful church? Bodies, buildings and bucks. It's true. That's what we count on. How many bodies? How big are the buildings and how many bucks? And we have different priorities at different times. We need the bucks to reach the bodies. We need the bodies to pay for the building, right? And so we get this whole thing going. And, and now, I'm not saying that that's all of it, but you see how it's easy to get wrapped up in that. And this is why so many people look at the church and say, I don't get it. Aren't you busy enough? Why do you need another building? Why all this talk about money all the time? You know, granted, there's selfishness and all of that when people say that, but there's also truth in their question. You know, how many bodies can we get to show up? How big is your church? How is your church doing? You know, well, the answer, the question is meant to tell you, well, how many people showed up last week, you see? And we pastors have a lot of ego issues that relate to that on the plus or the negative side of that. When people show up, we feel affirmed in our ministry and the church is doing well. When people don't, we feel, oh, Lord, I must have sinned one too many times this last week. We need the gospel too, right? You see, so much of the church revolves around that, and it just, is it any wonder people get fed up with institutional church, you know, organized religion? So that's why we try to be as disorganized as possible around here, right? (laughs) We're we're meeting that objective pretty well today, especially. People are not interested in that. Who wants to feel that their own purpose, that their purpose is is to show up, pay up, and shut up, right? Just show up, pay up, shut up, and we'll do it for you. See, that's not what church is all about. No, God didn't intend for the church to merely be a place we attend or that we belong. No, a second way of looking at the church is to see the church as a product that I consume. This is more subtle but probably more insidious. It's a product that I consume. This may be, I think, a particularly American way that we look at church. You see, our free enterprise system seems to have infected our approach to the church, and so churches compete with one another to provide the best possible services they can in order to reach and keep their customers, right? Who are the consumers? They're you guys. We provide as many things as we can for you so that you want to come back, right, as ministers that we have, and you see how Again, I'm, I'm, I'm painting kind of a broad stroke. I'm just trying to paint a big picture. But you can see how this is not really what the church is all about. Should the church have a meeting time and place? Well, yes. Yeah. Should it gather for worship? Yes, it should. You know, the church is a place that I attend. Should the church seek to provide programs and ministries to serve people? Well, yes, it should. But if the church becomes those things, it's become something that it really isn't, you see. And so, we promote church, as I call it, church as a vending machine. You know, put in your money, take out your product. Here it is. you don't like here, go to the next one, you see. Um, And it's just sad. that So, churches look for the or, or, churches and people look for the best music program, the best children's program, the best youth program, the best preaching, whatever we think best meets our needs. And if we don't find it here, we'll go to the church down the street or the one far away. It's amazing to me how many people drive way far from where they live to get to that particular church that has that particular thing. Now, this it's not altogether wrong. Please, broad strokes here, okay? give me a little bit of grace. I have been gone all week, you know. I didn't have time to massage the offensive parts out of this talk, you know. Uh, but in any case, there you can see there's a subtle way of thinking about that. You know, I just don't get anything out of it. I would say that at a vending machine. I'm going to stop putting my quarters in if I don't get anything out of it, right? And too many people just got the view, the view. I don't get anything out of it. And it's not always the people's fault. It's the church that says, we've got to have a lot of stuff in there so that when people with their coins to get something out, there's a transaction that's happening here. No, this is not what Jesus died to create. If the first view sees the church as an institution to protect, this second view sees the church as a product to promote. So our goal is to promote the product. We have advertising of all these things, get people to show up to take the stuff so, they, so we get, you know, we get their bucks to... Provide more buildings, so we can get more bodies. You see, we get—it's kind of a product that I promote, without intending to, without intending to. Again, so there's a, there's a plus side to all of this as well. But although it has not been our intention, we unknowingly communicate a message which says to people like Sanderson Ford or Santan Ford, it's all about you. It's all about—you heard that commercial on the radio, right? It's all about you. I even saw a church website which said right at the very front a few years ago, at such and such church, it's all about you. Let me tell you this: at Ecclesia, it's not all about you. It's just not. Go to the other church; it's just not. You know, not going to be that way. Uh, we, it's not all about. But we've we've communicated that as if our purpose is to be here to meet your needs, and then we wonder why Christians grow up so self centered. That's what we've taught them. Come and get, come and get, come and get, come and get. You know, is this what the church is all about? Is this what Jesus gave his life to create? No, Jesus didn't come to this earth simply to create an institution to perpetuate, nor simply to become a product to better the lives of people. No. Our desire is to become a different kind of church, in fact, we specifically do not want to become the kinds of churches I've just talked about. There is a place for that. There's a, there's a value in all of that, and I said there's a plus as well as a minus to all that. But in our view, we should look at the church not as a, an institution to protect or as a product that we promote, but rather church is a people who are called. We are a people who are called. You see, church is not about us. It's about God. God is doing something in the world. He is seeking to turn this world right side up, and he's calling men and women and boys and girls to join him in what he is doing to recreate this world. You see, church is part of God's ultimate restoration product. It's not our plan. It's not our idea. It's his idea. If this church succeeds on on God's plan, it won't be because some Preacher decided he wanted to start a church, but that God said, I need a fellowship like this in Cave Creek, and I'm going to take this broken down preacher and these other people who don't know what they're doing, and everybody will know it's about me because they didn't know what they were doing. And isn't that exactly what God said about Israel? People will know it wasn't about you. Who would have thought you? God's always been doing that. Now, should we bring the best of our resources? Yes, we should but we shouldn't be trusting in those things. You see, God is doing something significant in the world, in this mess of the world which we created. He's been on a restoration project since the beginning of time. His plan after Adam really got into, into, into in. into full force with Abraham, whom he called out of idolatry. He called him and blessed him and made him the father of a great nation, even though, what was he? Dead. And his wife was dead beyond years, right? Beyond the age of bearing children. He ultimately became a blessing to all people. That was his promise. His plan continued with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, later to be known as Israel, whose 12 sons became the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. God protected those 12 tribes because he has had a, plan for them. He protected those 12 tribes in Egypt and he called them from Egypt to Mount Sinai where what? Where he established his covenant with that rebellious group of people. He called them. He brought them. He made a covenant. He said, I've brought you this here so that you can be my people, so that I can be your God. It was all about God, always all about God. And again, his plan was to bless them so that through them he could bless the nations and bring healing to all of the nations. It was never meant to be you're my special people and I don't care about anybody else. It's you're my special people. I have a special place for you, but I want you to become a light to the Gentiles. I want people to see what a new community is like and others to be drawn to that. That was his plan. Well, of course, it didn't go so well for this new nation of Israel. Not Even as they were being given this new Covenant from God, they were breaking it full force with their own Egyptian orgy down below on the mountain. And so it was clear right from the start that this was going to be a long restoration project, okay? They re- repeatedly lapsed into idolatry and selfishness until ultimately they virtually destroyed themselves, ending up exiled in far away to Babylon. However, despite their faithfulness, God was faith their faithlessness, God was faithful and ultimately sent to them the deliverer that he had promised, none other than Jesus Himself, God in the flesh, God incarnate, God embodied, who gave his life for the world's rebellion and was raised to life for the world's redemption. That's what God did. It was always all about God. So while Jesus is doing this, he's calling to himself 12 men, symbolically reconstituting Israel around himself. He is the ultimate faithful Israel in whom God was, who gave his life for the sins of Israel and for the whole world, and then left these men, men through whom God would continue his work of redemption in the world. They would become the first living witnesses of God's new creation. They would be the ones who saw the resurrection as we've been looking at these last few weeks. They were the ones who would experience the life change and go out to tell people of this great new thing that God had done, that God had rescued humanity through the person of Jesus, and that He was doing something new in the world, and it would ultimately lead to a new heaven and a new earth. This is what God is doing. He called a group of people to make that happen. They were the first living witnesses of God's new creation, and they would be the means through whom God would spread the gospel His good news. What is it? That in Jesus Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That in Jesus Christ, God was undoing the rebellion and the destruction of human sinfulness and remaking the world into the free, loving community God has attended. You see, it's not about you. It's about God. And yet, we get to share in that. We're brought into that from the first day of Pentecost until today. God is gathering to Himself a people and sending them into the world as His representatives, living witnesses of God's new creation in Christ Jesus God is seeking to use this particular group and His church, His ecclesia, the called-out ones, as the instrument to bring positive change into the world. We see then that the church is not an institution. It's not a vending machine. The church is a movement God is moving. It's a missiological movement. God is always on mission. He's been reaching out to you since before you were born, and he wants to use you to reach out to others. He wants to make us into that kind of a community that people say, you know, there is a place I'm loved for who I am. There is a place I can find forgiveness. There is a place I hear the truth. There is a place I get help. There is a family I can be a part of. There is a purpose I can give my life to. Church as a movement. You see, our purpose is not to protect an institution as often happens nor is it to, uh, or to see a church merely as a place to attend let's do what we can to get more people to show up here nor is our purpose simply to promote a product as often happens we see the church as a product to consume no our purpose is to propel to propel the movement god wants us to keep that movement moving forward we want to propel That movement which God has initiated from the very beginning, from the beginning of Adam and Abraham and Moses, the prophets through Jesus and now through the early apostles, and here we are centuries later continuing that. The movement which God has been initiating from the very beginning. Church is not about us at all. It's about God and God's vision. God's vision is cosmic. We are here to effect positive change in the world. That's why we call ourselves Ecclesia. Ekklesia, as you may well know, Ekklesia is in fact, you can go on, Brian, I'm already on the next slide. Um, is in fact uh, the Bible word for the church. Ekklesia is the Bible, you can just go ahead and put all of it on because I'll just go quickly through the end of this. Um, um, the Bible word for their church, it means called out once. The interesting thing is the word "ekklesia," which is the Bible word for church, wasn't even a religious word at all. It was a word used in the political scene. It was a word we used when the the, the men of it, the male citizens of an area in Greece were called from their town in order to gather as a community and make decisions on behalf of the people. They would be called by the government to a meeting and then go back to the town to implement the decisions. That was the ecclesia, the assembly, the congregation. It had nothing to do with a facility at all. It had everything to do with the people who gathered. It was not a religious term, but rather a political term, Uh, not, 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 not having to do with the place where the people were called, but rather with who was being called and why they were being called. They were called by the government, gathered as representatives of their community, empowered to implement decisions for the good of the community. This word, this is the word that the early Christian writers used to talk about their group. It's interesting. They didn't choose the word synagogue. It's odd because really Christian worship is very much patterned after synagogue worship. They could have easily called it synagogue. The synagogue was a meeting place. They didn't want to talk about it. they didn't even think of the church as a meeting place they saw the church as a people called and gathered and sent, you see. Um, in fact, they were first, the first thing people called the church was the way, you know, the way, followers of the way, You see, it was all about the people and the people following the way of Jesus. They chose this term. They didn't choose synagogue or temple. Um, They didn't even choose the words church. Church is the wrong translation for the Greek word. It should have been congregation assembly. In fact, 80 years before the King James Version of the Bible, when Tyndale translated the Bible into English, he used the word congregation. It has nothing to do with a building. Church has to do with uh, a building, and it comes from the Latin translation, which had to do with Kiryakon, which came out of the institutionalized nature of the church, which is the church is that building you go to that controls and holds all the strings. No, that's not what it was at all about at at all. It means called out ones. It is significant that they chose this term Ecclesia. the writers of the New Testament never spoke of the church as the place where people met, but rather about the fact that a people was called and gathered and sent to effect change. Jesus himself set that example by calling the 12 to himself and forming them into a community and sending them into the world. Listen to this text in Mark chapter 6 and verse 7. And he called the 12 and began to send them out. He called the 12, a group, and began to send them out. That's the pattern. He called 12, a community, and sent them out. It is clear in the various commissions that Jesus gave to his followers, consider Matthew 28, 19, and 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the ages. All about God. We're sent on that mission from God. And Jesus, when he appeared to his disciples in John chapter 20 and verse 21, as the Father hath sent me, so send I you. He had called them to himself. He had kept them with him. And now he says, I'm going away. It's time for you to be sent. When Jesus was raised from the dead in the first chapter of Acts, the disciples said, Lord, are you going to establish the kingdom now? Are you going to restore it now? And he says, it's not any of your business what the Father has in mind. But he said... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and unto the ends of the earth. And then he was taken up from their sight. And while they're looking at him, the angel said, What are you looking up here for? Go do what Jesus said to do. So they went and waited for the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit came ten days later, they began to do what Jesus did, which was to become living witnesses of the resurrection of God. So, as the ecclesia of God, we are called and gathered and sent. We're called to what? Called to faith in the gospel of Jesus. We're gathered in love as the community of Christ. And the third one may not have printed on there. We are sent with hope on the mission of Christ. Called to faith in the gospel of Christ. Gathered in love as the community of Christ. Sent with hope on the mission of Christ. What do those three things mean? Come back the next three weeks, and we will talk about what we mean by those things. As I mentioned earlier today, you know, it was my sacred privilege to officiate at my father's funeral this past Wednesday. And uh, just before, you can imagine all that's going into that. For me, I'm trying to be true to myself and true to the setting and true to the fact of, you know, all the people who are present. And just before we just before we uh, close, uh, getting ready to start, this one lady comes up to me, probably in her 50s, like myself, maybe a little older, perhaps, and she's, she's very broken up, weeping somewhat, and she's holding a piece of paper, and she said, I, I, I just would really like to, can I just read this Jewish prayer for, I, I, I want to say, say this Jewish prayer, and all of a sudden <laughs> Let's see how this is going to go. So I just start to talk to her. Her name's Claire, and she's, she, said, she begins to tell me her story. She says, you know, ultimately, I have to be brief, but ultimately, what she worked with my dad some 20 years ago when he worked in Newport Beach. She's Jewish. And, uh, but, what it, he, but he had been just talking to her about his faith and all years ago, and they kept the relationship. Their families became friends. Um. And as it turned out, she said, I was just baptized as a Messianic Jew in April of this year. I just started to go to a Messianic gathering. She's a you know, Jewish person attending a Jewish congregation which worships Jesus as her Messiah. And oh, what a beautiful thing it was to me to hear Claire, who happens to live in Dewey, Arizona, of all things, and she says, I'm so glad. You know, she had the, you know, the, you know, the whole relationships are. Her and her husband and my dad and his wife had gotten good a few times. She said, I want to, maybe she'll come see us sometime, and maybe she'll tell you her story. And she invited me to come up to their Shabbat service on Saturdays up at, uh, in Prescott area. You see, God has his way of working, even in the large, circuitous way of our lives. And my father did not. she said, "I feel so bad. I wanted to tell your dad that, I, that I'd been baptized in April, and I hadn't told him. I just wanted to." So she read some of the Yiddish prayers. It was beautiful to have this, wasn't it, Steve, to have this beautiful uh, Hebrew reading of a blessing from a Jewish follower of Jesus. It was just beautiful. She has no idea what that meant to myself and my brothers it was such a blessing and uh, I am just once again in awe that God is doing what he wants to do it's not so hard don't make it so hard on yourself he's working in your life he's doing it he's never giving up on you he didn't give up on this lady he didn't give up on my father He doesn't give up on you. He's doing something. The gospel is always fresh. Let's be about that as a church. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for being with us this morning. Thank you that you have been working despite us often to accomplish your purposes So, Father, we want to close our worship time by saying thank you. Thank you for giving us this place where we can gather and be refreshed and renewed and reminded of the gospel. For it is the power of God to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. We celebrate that here today. In Jesus' name, amen.